Good evening. Quick programming note. This is our last Wednesday night of the year. Can you believe that? 2018 is coming to an end. So we will not be meeting the day after Christmas next week. And we won't be meeting on January 2nd either. So the next time we're in here on a Wednesday night will be uh, January 9th. So... Nothing else changes as far as Sunday mornings, and of course, we have our Christmas Eve service coming up, man, in just a few short days. Wild, Christmas Eve. Tonight, we are in the book of Malachi, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, page 1104. On in that Bible under the seat in front of you. Shall we go to the Lord in prayer tonight? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you tonight for security. I thank you, Lord, for the security that we have in you. The security that we have in your love. And the security that we have in in the future. We have it so good, Lord. And I pray, Father, that because of that, we would be good servants. That we would use our time wisely here on the earth. That we would be good witnesses for you. Give us understanding into your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So Malachi is the last book of the minor prophets, and it's actually the last book of the Old Testament. And it's also the last prophetic revelation of God to his people in the Old Testament era. God will not speak prophetically to his people for the next 400 years. Malachi's the last one. You can see on our chart that Malachi is over here. He is the last of the Old Testament uh, prophetic books. It's important to understand a little of uh, the history that surrounds this book, if you're going to understand it. Um, some amazing things have happened when Malachi comes on the scene. The nation of Israel or Judah had been taken into captivity by Babylon, but they were allowed to come back to Jerusalem and to their region. And as we've said a couple times now, 50,000 Jews came back under Zerubbabel and Joshua. And they came back, and with some delay, a 16-year delay, they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. So they have a functional, fully built temple in Jerusalem. After that, some other Jews came back to the land from Babylon under a leader by the name of Ezra. And Ezra brought spiritual restoration to the nation. And it was under Ezra that the priesthood now gets up and running. 
The priesthood is now operating. The sacrifices are being offered. They have all that going. And then after that, another group of Jews is allowed to return back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. You've heard of him. And under Nehemiah, they rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem. So they're back in the land. Their temple is rebuilt. Their city walls are rebuilt. The priesthood is functioning. And they're all in their own houses. Everything is great. A hundred years later, Malachi comes on the scene. And he brings a message. In fact, Malachi means my messenger. That's what his name means. He's a messenger from God. And it really is actually kind of sad. Because his message is one of warning and rebuke. After all that God has done, within a hundred years, within about three generations, Israel has gone back to its old ways. There are several sins that they are guilty of committing. I want to show you a few of them. The first sin is in verse 1 of chapter 1. Read that. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, In what way have you loved us? God responds to them, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Says the Lord, Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said we have been impoverished but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. First sin. They are guilty of questioning God's love for them. They're doubting God's love for them. They're even challenging God's love for them. They say to the Lord, in what way have you loved us? In what way? And it's kind of a biting sort of comment. Now, the reason they're asking that is because at this point in their history, they are under severe economic conditions. Things are not good. It's very, very hard to make ends meet. They're really struggling economically. And so they're looking at their present economic situation, and they're saying, in what way have you loved us, God? Now, the truth is, they are struggling economically, not because God doesn't love them. They're struggling, as you'll see, because of their own choices and actions that they have done. It has nothing to do with God's love, but that's what they say. And here in this passage, God says to them, I love you. Here he is affirming his love for them. He says in verse 2, I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. And he says to the nation, you are my chosen nation. 
by God's grace, by my grace, I elected you to be my own special nation. You notice that Jacob and Esau are mentioned. Jacob and Esau are brothers. Jacob, as you know, becomes Israel, the nation of Israel. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. And God is saying, Jacob, Israel, I chose you. You're my special people. You didn't deserve it. I just chose you. I've loved you in a special way. Now, when he says, Esau, I've hated, it doesn't mean that God hates. It means that I didn't select Esau. I didn't choose them. Israel, how could you question my love? I chose you. I brought you into your own land. I made a nation out of you. When the Babylonians came along and destroyed you, I brought you back into your land. There's your temple. There's your city. There's your houses. There's your priesthood. You know, Babylon also destroyed Edom. And Edom tried to rebuild, but they weren't able to. So God says, don't question my love for you. And my brother and sister in Christ, let's be careful that we don't do the same thing. Don't ever question God's love for you. Don't doubt God's love for you. Now, I know life gets hard. I know you go through some tough seasons at times, and we get hit with things that we don't understand, and we have these questions that come, in our, come, up, come up in our mind, and it hurts, and we cry, and there's pain. But don't ever question God's love for you. He loves you. He died for you on the cross. If you're a Christian here tonight, your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're saved for all of eternity. Rejoice in what God has done. And trust him in the tough seasons of life. So they question God's love. Look at a second sin that they were guilty of. Verse 6, same chapter, chapter 1. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say in what have we despised your name? Second sin. Guilty of dishonoring the name of God. They have become guilty of disrespecting God, of defiling God's name. And he points out, he says, think about how things work on a horizontal level. Usually, in general, sons honor their dads, respect their dads, obey their dads. Usually, servants honor, respect, and obey their masters, their bosses, right? And God says to his people, well, I'm your dad. Where's my honor? I'm your, I'm your master. I'm your boss. Where's my reverence? They're not honoring him. They said, well, how are we despising your name? Well, look at verse 7. God says to them, you offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying that the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? 
And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Folks, they were dishonoring God and disrespecting by bringing defiled offerings to the altar. See, in those days, they had to bring animals as sacrifice and offer them to the Lord. Law was perfectly clear on this. You had to bring healthy animals. You had to bring animals without blemish. You brought the best of your flocks. They were bringing their blind animals. Their sick animals. Their crippled animals. Think of it. They were bringing offerings to the Lord that weren't worth anything. They were bringing leftovers. They were bringing the things that you would get rid of anyway. They were bringing garbage to the Lord. They were bringing sacrifices to the Lord that they wouldn't dare give a human governor. God says, would you offer this to the governor? Powerful guy comes in. Would you give him these kinds of sacrifices and yet you have the gall to give them to me? By the way, that's why they were experiencing economic hardship. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Brother and sister in Christ, listen. Honor nobody more in your life than God. Keep him at the top of your list. Respect him. And one of the ways you honor God is that when you serve him, you give him your best. Give him the best of your time. Give him the best of your energy. Give him the best of the talent that he's given you. Give him the best of your resources. Give him the best of your finances. Show honor to the Lord in that way. Okay, the third sin is directed towards the leadership. The priests. Now remember, it's been a hundred years since the priests have started back to work. And they've already just absolutely blown it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. God says, and now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. That's strong, isn't it? The refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. They're in big trouble. The priests have become utterly corrupt. The Lord says, I'm going to smear garbage on your face. Why? Because they have broken 
the covenant that God made with Levi. Now, what covenant did God make with Levi? Well, who comes from the tribe of Levi? All the priests. And God made a covenant with them. You have a job to do. You're the priest. You're the spiritual leadership. And I hold you accountable to do that. Look at the job description of a priest. Verse 5. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. And people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That's the job description for a priest. Despite doing all the rituals and taking care of the sacrifices in the temple, priests were to number one reverence God, fear God, worship God, and model that so that other people would also fear God just by looking at their examples. The priests were supposed to be the messengers from God to the people. They were supposed to know the law and explain the law and give truth to the people from God's word. The priests were also supposed to pursue justice within the community. They would not take bribes. They wouldn't do anything Uh, that would pervert justice, and of course they were to use the law and apply the law to the different circumstances that people faced in the community. That was their job. God-given responsibilities. Verse 8, But you have departed from the way. Get this, you've caused many to stumble at the law. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I've also made you contemptible and base before all the people because you've not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. This is a gross, serious sin that they were committing. Folks, it is a serious sin when the spiritual leaders of God Neglect their God-given responsibilities as spiritual leaders. And that is exactly what is happening. And Malachi is calling them out. Same thing for us. If you're here tonight and you are a spiritual leader in the church. God's given you responsibilities. The church... Has responsibilities. There are things that God has called the church to do, and the leaders should be making sure that that happens. Number one, the Word of God should be faithfully taught. All of it, cover to cover, even the passages that people don't like. In a church, there should be a time for prayer, for the people to get together and pray. And I would say prayer also would include time of praise and worship where we're singing to the Lord. A church should also make it readily available for there to be true, meaning, deep fellowship among Christians. And then a church should also 
uh, provide opportunity to outreach with the gospel to the community. Those four things, man. And I will say that if, if I'm, you know, here I, I kind of gauge everything that we're going to do here by those four things. Is it teaching the Bible? Okay, go for it. Are we praying? Are we praising? Go for it. Is it time for meaningful fellowship? Go for it. Or is it an outreach to the community? Go for it. Maintain that. You would be amazed how many churches today don't do that. And how many spiritual leaders in the church neglect those things. It's a great sin. It's one that they were struggling with, and it's one that we need to be on guard at. Okay, the fourth sin, and this is a very, very, very important one. At this time in their history, they were guilty of profaning marriage. The marriage relationship. Look at verse 10, same chapter, chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? Having a remnant of the spirit and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates what? He hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The issue of marriage. Now, I want to show you. I want you to notice first what God thinks about the marriage relationship. I really emphasize when we read it in verse 11. Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. You know, in the eyes of God, marriage is a holy institution. It's sacred. It's separate. In fact, it's the most important institution. In fact, the marriage relationship was the first institution of God way back at the very beginning. The first institution of God wasn't a school. It wasn't a government. It wasn't even a church. The first institution of God was a marriage. 
It is the building block of society. It is holy. And what does he say about that institution? I love it. You have profaned this holy institution which he loves. God loves the marriage relationship. What does God hate? What does he love? Marriage. I want you to notice also at the end of verse 14. Yet she is your companion and your wife by what? Covenant. When you get married, you're making a covenant. Strong word. Not only a covenant between husband and wife, but a covenant with God. Marriage relationship is profoundly important. Now, in those days, they were profaning the marriage relationship in three ways. First, the guys were marrying non-believers. They were going out and they were marrying the daughter of foreign gods, as it says in verse 11. They were not marrying like believers. Now, please understand, God is not against interracial marriage. God is against interfaith marriage. A believer in Jesus Christ, a believer in God, should not be dating or marrying a non-believer. That profanes the marriage relationship. So take that to heart. If you're single here tonight, I don't care how cute that guy is or how beautiful that gal is. If you're a Christian, you need to date and marry Christians, period. Every now and then, somebody comes up to me, Pastor, pray for me. I'm, I'm dating this person. And I just want to know if it's God will, God's will. And I'll ask, well, does this person know the Lord? No. I know God's will. You're not to date that person. You'll get in a lot of trouble. Bible says to us as Christians, do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. They were also profaning the marriage relationship by, as it says several times, the guys were dealing treacherously with their wives. Being really ugly with their spouses. Don't do that. Husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Tall order, right? But we are to respect our wives. Pour into our lives. And wives, you should respect and love and honor your husband. Third, they were also profaning the marriage relationship by getting divorces. Divorce was rampant at that time in their history. The guys were divorcing their wives for any and every reason. And the idea here is it appears that they were divorcing their wives and going after these uh, real attractive, non-believing pagan girls. 
and God is putting an end to that. Listen, God hates divorce, and you know why he hates divorce? Because it is so destructive. What it does to a family, what it does to kids, what it does to every aspect of life. Do not do everything you can to save marriage. Everything that you possibly can. There are only two biblical grounds for divorce among Christians. Number one, adultery. And number two, abandonment. And I would put abuse in that as well. Now, if that happens in a marriage, that is grounds for divorce. That is permitted. But even then, I would say, don't pursue divorce right away. Work through it. Try to save that marriage. It's worth it. And I have seen God put couples back together who have been through some very, very difficult, difficult things. Now you say, well, what if um, I'm married, I'm a Christian and I'm married to a non-believer? What if I ignored God's will and I dated non-believer and ended up marrying a non-believer? And now I'm married to a non-believer and I want to really start following the Lord. Can I get rid of that non-believing guy? Or what if you got married when you were non-believers and then one of you gets married? Now you have a believer with a non-believer. Can the believer say, bye non-believer? No. If that's your position, love your non-believing spouse. Again, you wouldn't be permitted to leave that marriage unless there was adultery, abuse, or the guy wants to uh, abandon because of the faith. But love your husband, love your wife. Marriage is to be protected, it is to be honored, and it is to be cherished. Now, I know that we live in a society that's, that hates marriage. They're redefining marriage. They're perverting marriage. People are like, ah, oh, just get a divorce. No big deal. Don't fight for it. Go for it. In the church, in the church, marriage should be honored, protected, and fought for with every ounce of energy that you can give. Amen? Okay, another sin that they're guilty of, turn to chapter 3. And look at verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for if you robbed me, even this whole nation. So now they are guilty of committing the sin... Of stealing from God. Would you like to be known as someone who robbed God? Pretty serious indictment. How are they robbing God? Tithes and offerings. Okay, what's tithes and offering? In the Old Testament, under that old covenant, the people of God were committed to give a tithe of their work to the Lord. How much is a tithe? Ten percent. 10% of all their produce, 10% of all their resources, 
They were to give to the Lord the best, the first fruits, 10%. And then above that, they were to give offerings to the Lord. Okay? They're not doing that. They're not giving the tithe. They're not giving any offerings. And so God says, you're guilty of robbing me. Okay, I'm asked this all the time. Are Christians commanded in the New Testament to tithe? Are we commanded to give a 10%? No, we're not. The New Testament says this about giving. This is the defining verse. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We are to give. A specified amount isn't directed to us as Christians. However, most Bible commentators commentators believe that if in the Old Covenant law, the people gave 10%, that in the New Covenant, the New Testament, under the age of grace, that would be a great starting point for us as the people of God. 10% plus offerings. Totally between you and the Lord. But I want to remind you of something. 100% of what we have got to us by whom? God. Give to him. Now the reason God commands us to give is not because God's going broke. God's like, all oh, these people better give. Or I'm going to go broke up in here in heaven. The light bill's going to go off in heaven. God is rich. He doesn't need our money. He has commanded us to be generous because he knows it's good for us. Because he knows that in the heart of man... One of the biggest temptations and one of the biggest distractions of serving God wholeheartedly is you'd rather serve money. And so right up front, God says, we're going to deal with this money issue. And I'm telling you, man, you give to the Lord. The Bible says where your treasure is, there your, your heart is. What you give to, there's your heart to find you. Now look at the promise that comes with this. Look at verse 10. Still of chapter 3. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now on this. Give me a test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Now again, this would explain why they were experiencing such economic hardship. They were neglecting the tithe. Now if you give to the Lord, the promise is he'll bless you. Things will go well for you. He'll take care of you. You can't outgive God. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible where he says, test me on this. 
God says, test me. Give to my work. And you just see, you watch. Maybe that's something for us to think about as we go into the new year, huh? It takes faith. It can be hard. God says, test me. Give me a shot. Listen, it's so important that as Christians, I've used this before, there's the the, the open hand and then there's the closed hand. Approach life with an open hand. When you have an open hand, God can pour in. And so much can pour out. You give. God gives. People are blessed. Or you can have the closed hand. In a closed hand, nothing comes out. But not a whole lot goes in either. Understand that. Okay, there's one more sin that they're guilty of. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Same chapter. Look at this. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? And that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Here they are guilty of very harsh criticism. I would even call it hypercriticism towards God. They're complaining. They're grumbling. They're saying, what good is it to serve you, God? We serve you and all we do is mourn. Those that don't even acknowledge you, those that tempt you, those that disobey you, the wicked, they get raised up. What good is it for us to serve you, God? Very tough, critical, harsh words directed towards the Lord. In fact, really, they're blaming God, but remember their actions have brought a lot of the problem that they bring in upon themselves. So gang, listen, don't criticize God. Don't grumble against him. Now again, we go through seasons of life that are hard, they're difficult. And you know what? God says, bring all your problems to me. So you bring your tears. You bring your requests. You fall on your, Lord, I'm hurting here. You cry out for him. But don't criticize him. Don't complain against him. He loves you. He cares for you. Trust him. He'll get you through it. So I just went over six sins that this nation is guilty of committing within a hundred years. Just a few generations after being so blessed by the Lord. That tells me that these are weak spots. These are weak areas in our lives. They have been across the ages. So take particular notice of that. Doubting God's love. Dishonoring his name. Not giving him your best. Corrupt leadership. 
profaning the marriage relationship, robbing the Lord, not giving to him, and then hypercriticism or complaining. Okay. The book of Malachi, I always remember with the word messengers because, uh, and I've entitled our message tonight, messengers. And that's because of Malachi's name, which means my messenger. It's all about messengers. Malachi's a messenger. The priests were supposed to be messengers, you remember? But they weren't. And very quickly, this book is known for three very special messengers that God promised to his people. Very, very special. And I want to show you that real quickly. There are two messengers. By the way, these are famous prophecies. And it would have been very encouraging to Israel. For the next 400 years, they're looking for these messengers to show up. There's two of them in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look at it. Verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The first messenger is the messenger who, as it says, will prepare the way before the Lord. He will be the forerunner to the Lord. Isaiah speaks of this guy as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What messenger is being predicted there? John the Baptist, without a doubt. And we know that John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy. Jesus himself quoted from this verse saying that John is the fulfillment. Jesus said, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So John the Baptist is this messenger. 400 years after this was predicted, after 400 years of silence, The angel named Gabriel meets Zacharias the priest in the holy place of the temple. Do you remember this story? And he's he's an older man. His wife Elizabeth is old as well. And she's been barren. She's never been able to have children. And the angel Gabriel says, hey, you're going to be with child. And you're going to have a very special son. Your son is going to be born with the Holy Spirit in him. He's going to be a mighty, mighty messenger. And you're going to call him John. And he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so John comes on the scene. Everyone's attracted. They all love him. And he he really, he had a great position of honor in all of history. He's been called really the last prophet of the Old Testament. The transitionary prophet He is the one with the privilege of introducing the Messiah. Really cool. Okay, who's the second messenger in that verse? 
the Lord. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now look at verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. This is all speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And you see details of both his first coming and his second coming wrapped up together here. It is predicted that when he comes, he will come to the temple suddenly and he will purchase it. Or not purchase it, purge it. What does that make you think of? Remember early on in the Gospel of John, one of the first things Jesus did in his public ministry is he went to the temple suddenly and took his whip out and knocked all of the money exchangers out. Many people see a fulfillment there to this prediction here. It also says that he's like a launderer's soap. What do you do with launderer's soap? You clean something. What did Jesus do at the cross? He made it possible for our sins to be cleansed. So you see elements of his first coming. You also see elements of his second coming. For he will come again. He will come to his temple again. And he will come as judge. And he will refine and purify and purge as well. So the second messenger is the Lord. Then there is a third messenger predicted by Malachi, which I find very interesting. Skip to chapter 4 real quick. Look at verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Now that's the ancient way of saying you'll be prosperous. Okay. You shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like Judgment Day. We're being catapulted in time to when Jesus comes again, the second coming, the judgment, and all of that. Okay. Look who he mentions next. Verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you whom? Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with with a curse. Gang, Elijah the prophet. Is a messenger that's coming one day. Now, I don't know about you, but I really like Elijah the prophet. God, I mean, just a mighty man of God. He's a man of fire. Remember when he calls down fire? In that contest with the prophets of Baal, 
on, on Mount Carmel. I also read a story recently. It's in 2 Kings chapter 1 where a king, a pagan king who happens to be king of the northern kingdom of Israel, he's walking on his roof. He falls through the lattice. And he tells his servants, and he's real sick. He can't get out of bed. And he tells his servants to go down and ask Beelzebub, some pagan god, whether or not he's going to recover. And so this captain goes out with 50 servants, and God tells Elijah to meet them. So they come up, and Elijah says, you're going to this pagan god to ask whether or not you're going to recover. Well, he's not going to recover. And then he called down fire from heaven and crispified the captain in 50. So word gets back to the king, and what does he do? He sends another 50. <laughs> and a captain, same thing, calls fire down from heaven, crispifies them. And then he sends a third group and a third captain and this third captain falls before Elijah and says don't hurt <laughs> don't hurt yeah and, and Elijah goes okay I'm, I'm you're not going to be uh crispified but go back and tell your king finally he's not going to die or he's not going to live he will die on his bed so I mean Elijah is this fiery prophet Elijah remember also prayed that it would stop raining and what happened It stopped raining for three and a half years. He prayed that it would start raining. And what happened? It started raining. Uh, Elijah raised the dead. Not Elijah, but in the power of God. Did incredible miracles. And the other thing about Elijah that's very interesting is he didn't die. Elijah never died. How did he go to heaven? He was taken up in a chariot of fire. Really, really cool story. That guy's coming. Now, there are some that believe that John the Baptist is the fulfillment to this prophecy. That John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. Well, John the Baptist was asked directly by a crowd of people, are you Elijah to come? And what did John the Baptist say? No, I'm not. Remember that when he was, when Zacharias or Zacchaeus was told by the angel Gabriel of the son, remember he said that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But not that he was, in fact, Elijah. Now, Jesus said something very interesting when they asked about John the Baptist. Hey, is John the Baptist this Elijah to come? Jesus said this. If you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. In other words, it would have been possible. However, bottom line, they rejected John the Baptist and rejected Jesus, right? Best case scenario, John the Baptist is a partial fulfillment. But he's not the ultimate fulfillment. I do believe the real, literal Elijah the prophet... Is coming to planet earth. And I believe that he's coming. Because of the context of chapter 4. He's coming in the days. Leading up to the second coming of Christ. I believe Elijah the prophet is coming. 
during the tribulation period. In fact, the book of Revelation chapter 11 tells us that there are going to be two witnesses that come on the scene during the tribulation period. Two very mysterious witnesses. And I'm just going to read what Revelation 11 says. Listen carefully. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 1,260 days is exactly three and a half years. Some think that these guys will come on the scene right at the midpoint of the tribulation or at the beginning. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Check this out. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. That sounds like Elijah at work, doesn't it? People coming and they get toasted. Notice else what it says about these witnesses. They have power to shut heaven. So that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Elijah. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So every Bible scholar believes Elijah is one of these two witnesses. Who's the second witness? Most everybody believes it's Moses. Because who turned water to blood? Who put plagues on the earth? Moses. I I really do. I think it's going to be Elijah and Moses. And by the way, there's precedence for it. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? When Jesus is transfigured on the Mount and two men show up to talk to him, who were they? Moses and Elijah. There's precedent. And by the way, I find it interesting that Moses is mentioned in verse 4 here. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, and then Elijah. I think these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, and I can't wait to see them go. Can you imagine these guys back on planet Earth? And they'll be protected. Now, eventually, at the end of their testimony, uh, the book of Revelation teaches that they'll be killed. They'll be executed. Their bodies will lie in the street. And much of the world will exchange presents in celebration. Maybe it takes place at Christmas. I don't know. And then they'll be raised from the dead, live before everyone, and then float up to heaven. And it'll be God's way again of trying to awaken this world. So just a fun prophecy, don't you think? Messengers. The book of Malachi is famous in the Bible for these messengers, these very prophecies that we've studied. They certainly provide a piece to the prophetic puzzle that a lot of us are are interested in, in, in learning about and studying about. Okay, I want to finish by going back to that love theme. Christian, I want to remind you tonight as we close. Your relationship with God is built upon love. 
And don't make it any more confusing than that. Love. God loves you. And he's proved it. He died for you. He saved you. As Christians, let's just love him back. It's a love relationship. God loves you. Love him back. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. They were commanded to say that every day. The Shema. Reminded every day. What do I do today? I love God with my heart, my mind, my soul. Remember when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? This is the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. God loves you. Now live your life loving him back. With all of your mind, with all of your heart, with every breath. And part of loving God means that you're not afraid to be one of his messengers. Just like Malachi, let's keep going out there with that message of good news through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we close, I pray, Father, that you would greatly encourage your people here. Lord, thank you for the warnings in Scripture. Thank you for making us aware of those weak areas, those common pitfalls. Not just in our lives, but for your people throughout all of history. Lord, I guard us from making an idol out of money. Guard us from that. Guard us from... Spending every waking moment working for money. God, we want to we we serve you. So Lord, even if it's hard, we'll give to you. Because we want you to know that you're first place. Lord, I pray for any tonight who might be doubting your love. Reassure. Reassure them tonight of your great love for them. Love so great that you were willing to leave heaven to save us. Lord, help us to be strong and faithful and consistent in the storms of life. Pray that we would not be wishy-washy. We would stay firm. And Father, I do pray that we'd wake up each morning desiring to love you. To just love you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.